This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are my interviews with the director writer, producer, and star of the film Maestro, Bradley Cooper, his co-star, Carrie Mulligan, costume designer Mark Bridges, and Dan Baer's interview with the supervising sound editor, Richard King. We hope you enjoy this behind-the-scenes look at Maestro. Oh, that's, uh, 12. No. <laughs> Six. No. Hey. Can you try, could just call Maybe I should stop and think for a second. You should stop and think, because I am sending it to you. 20. No. <laughs> so how long do we have to do this for? Well, we need to build up a very strong connection. Bradley, Carrie, wonderful seeing both of you again. I uh, want to congratulate you, first of all, on an amazing movie, amazing work from both of you. Bradley, uh, starting off, can you tell me one element about Carrie's performance that surprised you? And then Carrie, on the other side of that, what element of Bradley's direction specifically surprised you? Um, I was surprised at every single moment that uh, Felicia was alive on set. And that's all because of Carrie. I mean, every you just pray for surprising moments as a filmmaker, as a director. And honestly, every single scene that she's in, everything she did surprised me and that, uh, in the best way. And that's just the truth. Certain things landed more. Uh, but everything was a surprise. The way she walked, her smile, you know, I mean... I, I don't think I've ever seen you smile so much in a movie. Am I wrong? <laughs> no, you're you're bang on. I don't usually. I do a lot more crying usually. Um, yeah, it was very cheerful. Um, yeah, yeah, it was so yeah. much. I would say if I had to pinpoint one thing, I was like the smiling. I was it was awesome. <laughs> loads of people have said that. Like oh, really? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Like family friends who are watching it now. You know, I'm getting lots of messages. Everyone's watching it on Netflix, and they're like, "Gosh, you you smile so much in this." We film. talked early on. You know, I I always thought of Carrie. You know, right away. But when we spoke, you know, we had some you know hardcore conversations. Remember in the beginning, it's like there's going to be something in the furnace that uh, that maybe isn't there or or hasn't been excavated and let's see what happens if that's excavated what comes out of it and she really did do that and i think one of the things that came out of it was a a just a completely different physicality and expressiveness that i haven't seen before in, in the work but do you know what i think that is i think that is like because you made me feel like free when I was doing it as a director and as a, as an actor too, a hundred percent, but also as a director that I felt completely free. And so I think that stuff I've always said, it's way harder to laugh in a movie than it is to cry. You know, it's so much easier just to like burst into tears and stand, you know, but it like to actually really laugh and to really express joy, I think is, 
really hard and um, I've always anyway so sorry Matt we've totally commandeered this interview but that's <laughs> all to say yeah yeah that oh let me talk about Bradley should I talk yeah. about Bradley <laughs> yeah okay um you know, it's interesting because we had so long from when Bradley asked me to do it in 2018 to when we got there it wasn't like it I, I was just sort of at every turn like oh okay we're gonna do it like this like this is totally new territory you're going to make it feel like not a film you're going to be Lenny by the time I get there like everything was you know there was no artifice there was no sort of right this is the coverage we're doing this is the thing it was just well this is the environment this is the space this is the house this is the theatre now we're going to have a fight I'm going to talk to you about Jamie it all just felt so real it didn't feel and I think that was kind of completely unique it was it was surprising, but also not surprising because I'd spent those years before with him doing completely surprising things. Like, you know, we went to Philadelphia and narrated an opera. I just never in a million years would have thought that that would ever be something I would do. Or, you know, just every at every turn, it was like the not the way that I'd ever done anything before and also the best way that I'd ever done anything. And the kind of way that makes you go, why haven't we always been doing this? This makes so much sense that we've removed all the artifice around filmmaking or we've, you know, made everyone feel so comfortable that they can make any you can do anything there's no mistakes yeah so all of that and then uh as i wrap up here i need to know who left snoopy in the vestibule uh um nina did nina nina did because they didn't want um their dog to eat it <laughs> lovely thank you both of you so so much here you're both wonderful in this movie you surprised me even though we know how talented you both are and bradley uh your direction sublime the whole way through. Just congratulations to the both of you. Seriously. Thanks a lot. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Are you itching to move? No, no. Good. Actually, at all. Welcome, everyone, to the Next Best Picture podcast, where we are talking with Richard King, the supervising sound editor from Maestro. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Daniel. It's my pleasure. I'm very excited to talk to you about this movie. Maestro is one of the most gorgeously crafted films of the year that I've seen, and very excited to talk to you about your role in it. Um, But first, I wanted to ask you how it was that you became involved with this project. Well, I've worked with Jason Ruder before, uh, the music editor, music supervisor on Maestro. And and Jason recommended me to Bradley. And Bradley uh, brought me on. And then uh, very early on, before I even started on the the movie, uh, he had a little screening at his house for the mixers, Tom Ozanich and Dean Zapanek, myself, uh, the picture editor, several other people. And we um, saw the film in its state, in its rough state then, and were able to kind of make some notes about what we thought of the sound, what we thought we could do with the sound. And that's how it started. And um, did a tent mix early in New York in beginning of January, which I was not around for because I had COVID, you know, kind of working remotely from LA. They did the Tempix in New York. Yeah, it was a it was a process. We started with this very good Tempix, which they screened and 
And uh, it was a it was a process. Bradley uh, has a, a particular process, a way he likes to work, uh, which is um, experimenting with things, trying things, trying things, and then deciding they don't work or trying a different way. It was a process that I guess went on through uh, up until about the summer. So you're working on this for it sounds like um quite a while or over a more protracted period of time. Yeah, yeah, it was about uh, roughly about hmm, four or five months, I reckon. Yeah. Um, were you familiar with Leonard Bernstein's work before working on on this film? Oh yes, uh-huh. yeah. I I remembered some of his young people's concerts that he that he did, and um, I mean he was always a uh, kind of the face of of classical music in the United States. That's how I saw him growing up, and. Um, uh, he was on TV quite a bit and, and being interviewed quite a bit. And he was, uh, but I didn't really know his composing work. Uh, I knew of him as a conductor. Uh, it was a real education for me to experience all of his, more of his music, the music that he actually composed in working on the film. Um, my, my awareness of, of, of Bernstein prior was, was mostly as a kind of a ambassador of classical music in the U.S., I feel like that's how most people remember him as. That's certainly what I would know him as. <laughs> and did you, in the course of prep work and working on this uh, film, did you did you feel like you ever had to do any research into his life, where he performed the, the music he wrote, etc.? Well, it, the film is not a documentary, of course, yeah. and it's not a, not even a biopic. It's a basically a, a a portrait of this love story between he and his wife Felicia, and um, but I don't think it's a bad thing to have some command of the, of the facts, especially in uh, you know telling the story of someone who existed. Uh, and so I read his uh, I read a couple of books about him. Uh, one by his daughter Jamie, which was. Uh, fantastic and really kind of gave the inside glimpse into what life around him was like and um and found that to be very true in the way that bradley put the film together um to me he really captured that kind of effervescent uh exciting don't really know what's going to happen next feeling about what it's like to be around someone like that who's just so full of creativity and energy just bursting at the seams with with ideas and you know a real humanitarian loved people uh complicated man very complicated person and he had a complicated life and i think uh uh the book really kind of brought home to me the despite all of his activities all of his traveling all of the things that he did to be this ambassador of classical music in the u.s he was really a family man too and loved his family and was very close to his children. And it accentuated sort of a love story of that, that Bradley's story that Bradley told in the film. So you said something about how, you know, like he was a very, um, he had, he had, you know, like a lot of busy 
ness in his in his life he was constantly doing things and you know going out and i think there is an element of the film that really does capture that especially with the sound you have people talking and diegetic music in the background and crowd noise and all these things there are several scenes that are really effective in the film where characters cross between non-contiguous spaces you know moving from one and then we follow them into this other space entirely what sort of work did you have to do on those scenes to make it sound as seamless as it looks yeah the mute the film's kind of composed like music and uh and we did do a lot of uh, a lot of smoothing of transitions between from scene to scene and from location to location. Juxtaposed with that was Bradley's desire to create a real, a very tangible sense of place for all of the locations we're in. There are two homes in Connecticut and on Long Island and in New York City at the Dakotas. But the transitions between those locations was very sort of soft and musical and meant to have a flow to it a musical flow between the themes of these different locations, I guess you could say. It works, and it's one of the more striking aspects of the film. And it's interesting that you say that it was sort of, the film is structured like a piece of music, because thinking back on it, it really does, the whole thing flows so seamlessly. There's a particular scene that I feel like is the standout for most of the people that I know who have seen the film. And this is when he's conducting that orchestra in the church cathedral. It's an incredible scene for a lot of reasons, but I wanted to ask you about that scene in particular, because it gets such a big reaction out of people. Did they record that orchestra playing live in that space or was that sound that they had pre-recorded and you had to work to make it sound like it was in this in this sort of vast echoey space no it was recorded in that space and um they used many many microphones i i think the number could be between 20 and 30 microphones around this wow that's also miking parts of the orchestra so that ultimately we had the ability to bring out certain instruments from others if we wanted to. Um, that was a discussion and something we tried at one point. But no, the, 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 the way it was recorded, it was, um, so it was a lot of tracks, a lot of separate tracks. And uh, Tom Ozanich, the music and dialogue mixer, was the one who kind of pulled all this together, along with Jason Reuter, who is, um, who is the music supervisor. There's practically no sound effects, no backgrounds throughout the, the duration of the piece of music because the music, the recordings of that day captured, first of all, the ambience of the space, the way the music sounded very ambiently, from like say the back of the the back of the um, cathedral, and also the specific uh, sections of the orchestra. And Tom, uh, kind of compose that all, pull that all together into the seamless whole that we hear. We did have a discussion about, you know, accentuating the violins when we're on the violin players or, you know, with the harp, when we're on the harp player and, or the singers were on the singers. But it seemed to make the, um, 
the the piece sound less grand and less all-consuming. So it became much more of a, this is a musical sequence that is all about that piece of music. And then when the music fades out, there's quite a long pause. And then the world comes crashing back in as the audience who are kind of stunned by what they've just uh, experienced um, responds with uh, great applause and cheers and the very emotional piece. I, I love that section of the film. It's it's quite uh, quite moving. It it is. It and you know it's not the the screening that in which I saw this film at the New York Film Festival and and several other screenings that I've heard talk talk about. You know people applaud they start applauding in that pause <laughs> where you 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 thoughtfully left a nice little pause there between the end of the of the piece and then when the you bring the audience in the movie back in and naturally like i feel like this is something that you know like it's true to the world like people do that after a piece of music finishes there is that sort of pause before the audience starts applauding but i'm wondering <laughs> if that was at all part of your consideration in how and when you mixed that uh that applause back in was potentially leaving space for the audience to have their own reaction to what we just witnessed well, I think it was the, for the audience in that cathedral. And incidentally, there wasn't an audience there. This was shot uh, during COVID, so, or, or, you know, during part of the COVID pandemic. So th there were some people there, but Bradley wanted there to be a, a kind of pregnant pause, but maybe just a beat longer than what no one would normally expect. I think just to uh, accentuate the, the power, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're creating a space for the the audience in the cathedral who are dumbfounded to kind of catch their breath before they respond and and yeah exactly a, a moment for the the audience in the theaters to respond and i, I love the idea that they uh, that they were applauding uh, at the, the end of the piece it's certainly one of those moments where you know it's you know, you're obviously you are not sitting in front of the live performance, but the emotion of that scene, the the music and the emotion of Lenny himself in Bradley's performance, right. just it's so overwhelming and powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And Bradley's performance is is so powerful and so um emotional and uh um i think the audience is is not only applauding for the music but also just for the you know his performance which was you know a one take thing it was a real um i asked him how many takes there was of this and he said that's the take and so it's uh <laughs> that was really i told him that was that's really a high wire act to you know have that entire orchestra in front of you uh, have the camera moving around you, and it's just uh, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a it's a wonder to to behold. It is. It truly is. And I also have to ask, you know, like in doing some research before um, before this interview, I noticed your name came up in another massive 2023 release, um, Oppenheimer, and that is another film where you have a lot of different sounds 
happening at any given moment where you have the the music the music of the score you have the sounds of whatever space the people are in overlapping dialogue do you when you're working on a film like and i think these films in in tone are very different but a lot of what you're being asked to do is in many ways you know the quote unquote, the, the same thing at least on the face of it but when you're working on projects that have this different in tone this difference in tone do you approach your work on them any differently um no, I tend to work from my instincts and my my gut reaction. I think I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and it, it occurred to me that film sound, good film sound design is a lot like comedy in that it's very hard to explain why or how something should work. But you just know it in your gut when you see that it does. So that's how i tend to work and and i i bring my my same approach is 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 always to try to to make the the audience feel like they are part of the story feel like they're inside the story feel like they're you know that they're occupying the same space as these characters and then it's just a matter of degrees and how far you want to push that sense of three-dimensionality you know we don't really need 3d film because i think film sound design is 3d it really it really it's not about painting a a throwing throwing sonic colors at a two-dimensional canvas it's about pulling the audience into this 3d world in which the characters are living and thereby allowing them to live with them vicariously understand them more sympathize with them more and subjectively feel their dramas their issues their the situation that they're in so yeah that's just that's how i tend to approach things and then it's uh it's you know bradley has a, had a very distinct idea of how he wanted uh, the transitions to work um and also s- somewhat of an idea of what each of the locations should sound like to Englewood should have a specific kind of vibe about it. The Connecticut House should have a specific kind of feeling about it. And the Long Island House, New York City, of course. You know, and we we, we had we had the elements with which to create those spaces were in the country were birds and wind and you know, it, there are thousands of different kinds of winds if you start really dissecting things and uh and so wind was a big motif that bradley wanted to accentuate and kind of the movement the flow the the kind of excitement uh the feeling of of change of seasons changing there was a lot of work finding just the right combination of which different winds would work how many how much leaves should be sound of leaves that should be in the wind the birds were another search to find just the right just the right sounds for them and and how to how they change throughout the film they're sort of crows more predominate towards the latter part of the film as as bradley's life is getting more complicated and his wife's getting sicker as a sound designer you use subtlety in a way that hopefully will subconsciously 
provide a reaction of the audience that they're not supposed to be aware that they're getting. You know, it's it's kind of like um, I think sound could be called the sound filmmaker's secret weapon in that you can get away with a lot unless you you know unless you push something too far and show your cards. But if you're if you can do it with subtlety, then I think it can add a lot of sound design can add a lot of um, emotion and accentuate the emotion of the scene. First of all, I love that detail about the birds, <laughs> about changing what birds are more prominent throughout the movie in different places. I think that's fantastic. I I love that detail a lot. But when for you... instance, there there there's seagulls in the Long Island house because they yeah I heard those sound. And uh, and was finding just the right seagull that had kind of that had a characteristic sound because you know seagulls make <laughs> a lot of different weird. Some of them are weird sounds, yes. not particularly evocative of seagulls. So it was about finding just the right uh, just the right call that would just you knew exactly what it was without having to think. That's a weird sounding bird, but just that kind of um, perfect seagull call. And same with the crows; you don't want them to sound like the uh deep in the evil forest uh sort of sound um carrion death crow uh sound you want them to, <laughs> you know and, and crows also make a lot of different kinds of sounds um so it was about finding just the right kind of vibe and the right feeling like they always kind of remind me of fall or autumn they, they were at the Connecticut house quite a bit it seems in the autumns and you know, Tanglewood has its kind of upstate New York, uh, more happy, more, um, I would say, more rural kind of a sound of them. We're coming up on close to the end of our time together, and you just, you know, mentioned that the crows made you think of of fall and autumn a lot. There's a line in the film about where Felicia tells Lenny that if summer doesn't sing in you... You've lost something. Was that one of your like guiding principles for the sound of this movie, having summer sing inside certain scenes? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, we really wanted to accentuate the seasons and the scene that she, um, which she says that line, they're standing on the upstairs balcony of, of their Connecticut house. And the wind is quite predominant in that particular moment. It's It feels like kind of a, a late summer day, perhaps. The leaves sound a little bit dry. They're a little bit, um, you know, and, and again, finding the right kind of wind is a, is a real it sounds so simple, I know, but it but it's just it's surpri- surprisingly difficult in that wind can just sound like white noise, and it's what it, which has no uh, character to it, right? So it, it's really about finding you know a, a search to find the right wind that has variation, that has gusts, that actually sounds like wind rather than just a shh. Uh, constant background and uh, and we were we were uh, 
we were blessed by having the large tree in the background of that scene really start to move and in response to the wind and so it was a great a great opportunity for us to kind of really bring wind and sound of change and wind into that uh into that scene it would just gives me a feeling of i don't know what what the word is it's freshness or something about being around someone who's so spontaneous who's so uh you know the way that that bradley portrayed lenny someone's sort of unpredictable very much in touch with himself constantly full of surprises uh challenging to be around wind became a became a big motif throughout the film and then sometimes silence was a, a motif that was used quite a bit especially late in the film as felicia's um uh, is is succumbing and she's dying it becomes very quiet very kind of still and everyone's kind of holding their breath to you know wait to see what will happen and so yeah it was a it was a it was a interesting fun journey working on maestro it certainly sounds like it richard thank you again so much for joining us today and speaking about this film my pleasure daniel thank you i'm thinking of a number <laughs> oh i don't know nine no five no you have to think <laughs> i'm trying to it's two, darling. Two. It's two. Like us, a pair. Two little ducks in a pond. All right, everyone. I'm being joined right now by the costume designer for Bradley Cooper's newest film, Maestro, two-time Academy Award winner, Mark Bridges, everyone. Mark, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for doing this. Hi, thank you. Glad to be here. I am so happy to be speaking with you. I, I've been told over the years uh, you and I bear uh, a striking resemblance to one another by uh, many a people have uh, commented this to me. Uh, so I'm glad that we're just getting a moment here to finally conduct an interview uh, with one another. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, take it away. Absolutely. So first of all, how did you come aboard the project? I know that your resume speaks for itself. You've done so many great films, prestige projects. You've worked with Bradley before, too, um, as an actor. Uh, but how did it come to be uh, with him reaching out to you to work on this as a director? You know, very similar. I mean, we were... Uh there's a level of trust that we created certainly working on silver linings playbook and then um a licorice pizza together and that was just about the time that he was putting his film together and we were starting camera tests so um it was just great timing that he asked me to come aboard and i love the concept of telling the story of and telling a story from 1943 to 1989 uh, and, and wanting to uh, contribute to that. And I didn't really know that much about the Bernsteins, certainly not Felicia. And so that was, uh, I love research and I loved biographies. And um, so it all worked together for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And 
you also have had experience too working in the realm of black and white with your work on the artist. Um, can you tell me a bit about what exactly goes into costuming for black and white? Because I understand that the color selection in particular is very, very important for how that will appear on camera. Yeah, the color selection is important. You know, I try to go with textures and things of higher contrast because in color pastels, they all look different color, you know, but medium values in black and white all look the same. Um, they're just one tone. So um, you do have to do tests. We were lucky enough to do some tests with Maddie Labatique and, you know, just, and I knew that textures and things like beading worked really well. You know, I, I'm a big student of classic films, so I see how they use high contrast or uh, the lightest color in a frame to draw your eye to the lead actress or building in contrast to draw your eye to who you're supposed to be looking at. So I tried to use a little bit of that in uh, creating scenes. Um, so, you know, uh, these are all things that I've either learned from doing the artist or observed with my constant watching of classic films on Turner Classic Movies. Yeah. Now, when you have scenes where Bradley, um, I'm thinking of one scene in particular where he's conducting um, a group of students. So everyone's not wearing, you know, a standard black tie, uh, you know, like save like for the cathedral scene, but they're just wearing normal everyday average clothes. Does a day like that uh, daunt on you um, as far as just having to dress up that many people? Or is it something that you don't even think about because they don't necessarily have to stand out so much in those big uh, groups? Oh, um, if you're talking about uh, Tanglewood in 1989, when he is uh, Lenny's wearing the white shirt and he's trying to help a conductor conduct is that the scene you're talking about? i was thinking of that one and i was also thinking of the one where he's i'm trying to remember where he is exactly but he is conducting choir group right so you know it's interesting i, I love that question because i i think it, it's good to to let everybody know that everybody is comes in gets fit gets altered gets shoes gets jewelry like nothing is left to chance all of those people singing we all came in for fittings and we scoured any of our sources to be able to dress them in the early 70s clothing um, and and certainly the Tanglewood uh, students in 1989, all of them were in period clothing too, and had shoes bought for them and belts and like down to the last detail. Nothing's really left to chance because we're that's part of the story too. You know, we I'm really big into setting time and place, so. All of the choral singers needed to be early 70s. 
and all of the uh, students at Tanglewood needed to be late 80s. So just because that's part of my telling that story. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you were mentioning before, because this story takes place over the course of several decades, you need to track that through your work. Now, is this the type of project where you're looking at real life photos of these people who did exist for reference? Or are you looking at costumes or or outfits rather from the time and applying that to these real life people? I, I guess the question works both ways, but I'm wondering if you referenced anything specific that they wore in photos versus research on the era in general. Yeah, and I think it's a combination of both, really. Um, you know, you, you look at all of this enormous amount of photographic research of them, and you're, you're really trying to, okay, this is what he wore at his debut. Does that work for our piece? Mm-hmm. Uh, how, 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 and what I make, is that going to be strong enough to say 1943 mm-hmm. you know i look at uh, early pictures of his and uh felicia's relationship and you can see right away that she's very smartly dressed that she presents herself in a really lovely chic way and and so you're learning about characters from all this research and sometimes there are things that work that look like a moment in their life and other times there are things that you want to see you get a flavor of what my design is going to be like from some of the research but then I go off and do my own designs I think the gown that she wears backstage in the 50s when he's conducting and she wears the opera gloves and she's smoking backstage you know, there are pictures of Felicia backstage in in gowns waiting for him, but that was something we made on our own. I'd, I'd found a design that I thought would photograph really well. We made that gown. Um, the shape of the skirt was the shape of a skirt that she wore, and you knew it was going to be sort of medium shot to close up, so you want to put some interest from the waist up but if you did we did see a long shot of it so the shape of the skirt works um so it's a combination of going through all of this research deciding what serves our purpose and then deciding what we need to elaborate on or exaggerate or tone down uh from reality to serve our dramatic purpose yeah And so one thing I was thinking a lot about, too, was in terms of how costumes inform character. The beginning of the movie, Leonard starts off with clothes, obviously in black and white, so it's a little tough to tell. But it feels more um, grounded and conservative to me, whereas as the film progresses, his outfits become a little bit more flamboyant, matching um, his – I guess you could say comfort uh, with who he is and uh, um, understanding of um, his sexual life. Whereas Felicia, I think, starts off very elegant. And as the movie goes on, her her clothes start to become more I don't I'm trying to think of another word other than homey. um, But obviously it's due to her illness. So there seems to be like just these two parallel journeys that these characters are going through that are exemplified through the clothes that they wear. 
Well, thank you, because that was that is my job right there. Um, <laughs> certainly, you know, as I said, I always try to do time and place and then, you know, try to be the outer shell of whatever inner life is going on for these characters, too. You know, it's funny just to talk about Leonard's through line. You know, the 40s had different mores than the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. So, of course, and and then as a person, he matured, he changed, he became more of a public figure. Um, men's fashion became more of a peacock. Um, so, so we're trying to reflect the passage of time in those changes, as well as give quiet emphasis to what's going on inside. And then she, uh, you know, does start out very chic, but she takes on the role of Mrs. Maestro and has a public life as well as her own career. And, uh, you know, as an actress, quite well known on new medium of television. Um, And so, but she is also the center of she has three children she runs that household she's mrs maestro um she's there for him and the kids and less about herself so I, it sounds like the way you saw the clothes was exactly as i had intended them to be read yay success <laughs> With that said, I, there's one uh, scene in particular that I uh, remember. It's the scene where Leonard talks to his daughter, played by Maya Hawk here, about rumors that have been uh, circulating about him. And I, if I recall correctly, he's wearing a sweatshirt that I think is uh, written in – is it is, is it Hebrew? I can't remember exactly what it was. Um but I, I seem to recall there was a phrase that was written on a sweatshirt that he's wearing in that scene with her. Do you recall? Yeah, it's um, it's Harvard in Hebrew. Oh, it is. OK. Uh, and, um, you know, it's something that we saw. We wanted some kind of sweatshirt mm-hmm. for Lenny. Um, he wears um, a Mahler sweatshirt a lot with a portrait of Mahler and it says Mahler. Um, I'm a little reluctant to use things printed on shirts in film because inevitably you're looking at the shirt instead of where you're supposed to look at the face, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, I find it very distracting, but this was something that we saw. Lenny actually wore it sort of later in his life and probably in the eighties, late seven, uh, late seventies, eighties. And, um, but we decided to move it up for that scene you know, he's comfortable in the country, switches from his city clothes to his sweatshirt and jeans out in the country. But yet, because it's, it's not, uh, not everybody can read it, you know, and it doesn't say blatantly Harvard, but yet it was a real thing in Lenny's life. We thought it was a good, subtle way to use something from his life that would have been real to him, but not distract within the scene. And I have to say, I, 
I love how it works because I because you don't want to be distracted from Bradley at that moment. That scene and that performance right there is so stunning to me. Um, I'm glad we're not taking away from it in any way. Yeah, as soon as you said that, I just started flashing through all the times I've seen phrases written on shirts and movies and how it did actually distract me or make me laugh or something or another. So I think I think you're absolutely correct in that sense. Um, speaking of memorable outfits, though, um, I need to know what was your favorite design for Carrie in this movie? Because she's got some really, really fantastic uh, designs, specifically, I think, uh, as she gets to. Uh, the midway point in her life. I, I think that some of the coats that she wears all, like just have such uh, elegance to them. Oh, thank you. You know what? I, I really love the way we meet her in 1946 at the Aral party. Um, we put a lot of work into that. You know, we even made her little clutch bag. Um, we had that dress and the, sh and the wrap beaded especially for that to to recreate that 40s gown um you know that that is my favorite because how you meet a character sort of sets the tone of everything that comes back comes afterward and i think we see that she's a pulled together woman of her time and um you know, there are subtle things that I use that I felt like the beating was very nice because there's some kind of sparkle between them. You know, it's not just a plain flat dress. There's a little life to it. And that emphasizes what is actually happening as sparks sort of fly with them when they go to the theater. There's a lot there were we put a lot of effort and care into making sure we met Felicia in a very uh, interesting and, and appropriate way. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think so, too. Is there a hidden detail in any of the outfits within Maestro that you would like our listeners to know, either maybe from extensive research or just something or another that you're particularly proud of? Hmm. You know, there's a the, the scene where uh, Lenny is at the afternoon rehearsal and he's wearing the striped shirt with the neckerchief mm -hmm. and the jeans. He says all artists come to a time when they need to be unencumbered and need to have the life that they need to have. He's actually wearing some uh, Puma uh, sneakers that... I have a photo of Lenny actually wearing mm -hmm. and they were made especially for us, for uh, Bradley in this retro style oh. from Puma. Yeah. And uh, it, it was really shocking to me that we were able to get, you know, we paid so much attention to everything, but the footwear, you know, between those embroidered, L with the bullion embroidery, the LB slippers that she sets outside the of the hotel room uh, on hit with his toothbrush. You know, that's something that LB really owned. Um, those Pumas circa 1970 uh, were, were made for the show. Um, we just, we just tried to be as faithful and accurate to the man and his world as possible. And, and um, th those are two examples of things that may not have really been seen, but that's how far we went to get it right. 
And then as we come to the end here, I would like to know from your perspective, I feel like a lot of times costume designers get uh, a lot of praise for making costumes that really stand out. I mean, like jump out of the screen at you. But I look through your work and I see that there is a subtlety to how the costumes simply just blend in and feel of, of that time and place. I imagine that that's more what you prefer. Um, do you have like any thoughts on the types of like costumes and films that tend to get recognized versus this more subtler approach? Hmm. I haven't really thought about it. You know, I, I, there are things that I notice as a costume designer that I think a lot of people wouldn't notice there are things that I appreciate, you know, wow, so-and-so did an amazing job of the cut of that suit because it's that unique two-year window, you know, something like that. Like I'm looking at things and I can appreciate the work that went into it. You know, I'm there to contribute. I'm there to help the actor do the best performance that they can do. I'm there to realize a director's vision. And it's so it's, you know, on, on the, uh, on the totem pole of things, you know, a lot of people or departments have to be satisfied with the clothes before I get to be satisfied with it. And mm -hmm. I'm there to, to serve the piece. You know, so it's not about me. And, um, you know, I just want to do the best job I can for the piece. So that's how it becomes just like quiet emphasis with respect to a performance and a script. That's how that's how it comes out on my end. Um, I love visual things with costumes where I go, how did they do that? I can't even imagine myself doing something like that, you know, sheer volume or um, the spectacle of it. Um, you know, I just am a fan sitting there like I was, you know, as a kid sitting in the movies going, wow, those are some great costumes, you know? Yes. You continuously work with Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, you've recently worked with uh, Steven Spielberg. You've also worked with Noah Baumbach. I don't know if you're allowed to say, uh, but can you tell us where we can look forward to any of your work coming up in the future? Um, yes, I, I'm, I'm doing another job with director Paul Greengrass. Nice. Um, I, I, uh, this will be our fourth collaboration. And um, that's that's what I just have started working on that now that the dust is settled from the various strikes. Um, and really excited about it. Um you know, I have a great time with Paul. He's so interesting. Paul Greengrass and is so interesting and, um, you know, always wants everything to be very real. And um, I love trying to make it seem real, but also be dramatic and serve the piece visually. So that's, a, that's something that's interesting to me. And it's so different from you know, say Phantom Thread or even Maestro or Marriage Story, you know, they're, everything is different. And so another challenge of making something look very, very real and undesigned is a cool challenge for me. And that's what I always get to do with Paul Greengrass. 
That's awesome. I, that's actually the last thing I was going to ask you was like, what's the what's the next challenge? And you pretty much just said it right there. So, Mark, this has been a pleasure. I'm very glad to get insight into your process and also hearing more about your work here on Maestro, which I think uh, a lot of people are going to appreciate when it comes to uh, Netflix on December 20th and currently playing in limited release as of this conversation right now. Uh, congratulations on honestly not just this film but just an amazing career overall and thank you very much for the time here today thank you my pleasure all right you have a wonderful rest of your day you too bye-bye hey everyone thank you so much for listening to my interviews with the director producer writer and star of the new film maestro bradley cooper his co-star carrie mulligan and the film's costume designer mark bridges along with dan bear's interview with the supervising sound editor richard king here on the next best picture podcast maestro is up for your consideration for all eligible categories at the 96th annual academy awards including best picture best director Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Costume Design, and Best Sound. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture Podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.